So welcome, welcome to the next better than ever edition of the Peds Ortho <laughs> podcast today. Um, we're excited to be back with you today. Um, Julia will be joining us shortly, but at least to kick off the program, Carter and I are here. And so uh, I'm going to be the host of today's show. Uh, this is Josh Holt from University of Iowa, and I'm joined with Carter Clement, Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And we're really happy to have a, an old friend of the podcast. So uh, Chris was on the podcast back in the, the old days, just with me, almost three years ago now. And uh, he has done some more work, and we're excited to have him back on the show. He might um, he might not remember too much of the recording from three years ago, but we're excited to have him with us. So um, we'd like to welcome uh, Chris Makarowicz to the program again. So Chris, welcome. Yeah, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here again. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you on, and we hope to pick your brain a bit. You know, we were just talking before we started the show, and really the real unique thing, I think, about peds orthopedics is just how different everyone's practice can be, right? So even though we're all in orthopedics and we're all in pediatric support uh, orthopedics and have done kind of specialized training in that, just looking at the difference of the practice between the three of us on the program right now is uh, it's quite a appeal to me. What drew me to pediatrics is just the variety of practice that you can have. And so you kind of come at it from a different angle that I, you know, I certainly do a little bit of stuff in the deformity world, but as we were just talking about, you've done some additional training and some additional work and have a fair, a fairly focused practice on a lot of elective limb deformity. So we're excited to hear your perspective and some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I'm lucky enough to be able to do mostly deformity in my elective practice, but still really enjoy trauma and that aspect of like operating all over the body that I think a lot of people like about Pete's. Yeah. And you, you know, you've got a bit of a um, wide training. I kind of brag that I hit all four time zones in my education and training and you know, my wife and I really had an enjoyable time getting to see a fair bit of the country and 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 even a little bit of international stuff. You're similar um, in that a lot of your early years were up in the the northeast, and then came down to Salt Lake for residency, and then back out east uh, at Chop for fellowship, and then spent some extra time out um, in Baltimore doing the deformity six month fellowship there. And so, if you can, just take thirty seconds and maybe give us the highlights of what you learned or what you took away from that um, kind of extra six months that you got in deformity. Yeah, I thought that was, that was really valuable for me. I, in general, like I don't like the idea of having to do two fellowships to do peds, but being able to spend time with Dr. Herzenberg and that, that whole group there, like really was nice to kind of polish the deformity skills. Like at, at chop, we, they had sort of like a choose your own adventure um, set up where you got to pick your cases week to week. And so, you know, you try to hit everything, but then you can focus in on one area. And I definitely focused in on deformity, but it was just nice to have like a little bit of extra time to really learn like the details and, you know, the surgical techniques. Sure. But even outside of that, it's just like the framework for thinking about deformity and how to approach cases, I think was the best part of that. Yeah. And so I guess what would your advice to any of the the young listeners we have that maybe are deciding on fellowships and like you hit on, you know, two fellowships or one fellowship plus some international work or 
a fellowship plus one of these kind of shorter three or six month um, fellowships. Do you have any insight as to how you would, how would you recommend to someone that maybe you are trying to mentor along? Yeah, I think, you know, doing two full years of fellowship for, for me would have been, would have been too long. I think, you know, I think like a year of peds, like loved that. And then I really like the idea of doing a little chunk of time where you can, you can focus in on one thing. And so, you know, if you, if you didn't mind extra training and you found something you were really passionate about and you could, you could do another year, I think that's okay. Like I said, I don't like that trend of having to do two fellowships to, to do pediatric orthopedics, but I really like the idea of getting a broad exposure to peds and then being able to focus in whether through like a formal fellowship or just like a traveling fellowship or, you know, one of my fellowship uh, co-fellows, fellowship mates, um, spent some extra time after training to see some like specialized sports stuff, like some trochleoplasty. And I think it's just nice to be able to add something extra that you might not see otherwise. So if, if you can do something, even if it's short, I think that's, it's a nice thing to add. Um, so along the way, Chris, I'm going to go backwards just a step or two here. So three years since you've been on the program, um, a couple questions that maybe help our audience get to know you a little, a little bit better. So in the last three years, where has been the best place that you have visited that you would go back to first, if you could choose vacation or work trip or any of the above? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, one of the places that we go back to time and time again is Moab. That's probably my favorite place outside of Salt Lake. Like you can go there almost year round, you know, there's like amazing camping. You can camp right near, right near trail systems. And so that's, that's like our go-to that we go back to and we always love it. And do you, are you a hiker? Are you a biker? Are you a off-roader? What do you do in Moab? Um, usually bike. Yeah. Mountain bike. Moab's nice because it has like such a big variety of trails that like you can bike with like the kids in the morning and then you can do something a little harder if you want in the afternoon. But there's also like great hikes and we love to hike with the kids too. So, And then the follow-up question to that, which is perfect, is when you're in Moab and you're hiking and or biking, what is your biggest feared injury of getting? When you think of falling down a hill in Moab and hurting yourself, <laughs> what, do you, what do you dread the most? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's, um, I think it's a clavicle fracture um, because... I like, I still debate with myself, like, how do I want it treated? You know, like in kids, I, kids and adolescents, like I'm very non-op, you know, I, I think there's good evidence to support non-operative treatment for those, for those folks. And then there's reasonable evidence that non-op's okay in adults too. But, but when I think about it, sometimes I'm like, ah, I think I just want to get it fixed. So I could go back to work quicker or use it quicker. So I just, I don't want to have to make those decisions. So that's my biggest fear probably. Yeah, that's good. I, I And the reason I ask is when I rotated at Salt Lake, it was in the summer ages ago, and I think there were three or four, a variable degree of Liz Frank injuries from climbers, you know, falling of different heights and uh, and having Liz Frank injuries. So I remember at like the weekend, post-weekend pass on rounds, reviewing all the traumas from the weekend, um, there was probably 30 minutes of discussion on kind of Liz Frank injuries and climbers and falling from various heights and things. So certainly when I think of hiking in, in Salt Lake, that still comes to mind. Yeah. Foot trauma would be hard too, like a bad calc injury or something. That's, that's up there too. Certainly. And then last question, and I'm going to spin this from different from how we normal ask. 
when you look at your OR cases coming up for the next week, what case do you do that still brings you the most, I don't want to say um, stress or anxiety, but kind of angst, like you really got to feel like you're really focused in and, and keyed in to, to have it go smoothly? I think it's probably um, doing, you know, it's like it's stressful, but also like kind of exciting for me is doing like retrograde femoral nails for kids who have like a limb length difference and an angular correction. Because when it like, when it works out and when you see them at the end of the process and you get that x-ray and like their hips are level and their mechanical axes look great, like it's awesome. But there's always at least one point in the case where I'm like, this is never going to happen, you know? And so it's, Mm -hmm. um, it's still like, you know, you, you plan as much as you, as much as you can, but there's always some intraoperative thinking and troubleshooting. Very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's dive right into stuff now. And, you know, we've got a, I mean, this is perfect because it kind of segues into a lot of the conversation that we'll have today. But you recently published a paper with Dr. Stevens. You're the first author and Peter Stevens is the senior author um, that was in uh, JPO of uh, this this current edition, looking at the hemiepiphysidesis for coronal plane angular deformity of the distal femur in children with achondroplasia. And, you know, a pretty specialized area on a relatively specialized patient population. Why don't you tell us a little bit of, of why you did this study and, and what you found? Yeah, so um, that study was based on work that was started by Dr. Peter Stevens, who was a major contributor to the popularity and the kind of expanded use of guided growth. And so the goal, like his goal, was to find ways to correct angular deformities in a more gradual way with like smaller interventions that, you know, with hemiepiphysiodesis, which usually had fewer or less severe complications compared to osteotomies. And, um, you know, I think previously there were concerns about using hemiepiphysiodesis in kids with achondroplasia, basically like would it work um, with their slower rate of growth? And so with our like series of patients, we were able to show that you can achieve good radiographic results with significant improvement in alignment with um, hemiphysiodesis of the distal femur and proximal tibia. And then maybe most importantly, no one in our series needed an osteotomy at the distal femur or proximal tibia. Like guided growth was enough to get them to where they needed to be. Yeah, this is certainly the first paper that I know of that looks specifically at that. And a couple of questions and follow-up that I would have for you is what 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 unique things about this population should should we keep in mind if we're considering guided growth? Is it timing, like you mentioned the some of the slower growth? Is it posi- positioning of the the plates? Um is there something unique that you guys did or learned from this study that that we could apply to our practices? Yeah, I think certainly the timing is important. You know, we found, I think our average time to correction was two and a half years, which is much longer than like idiopathic genuvalgum or or some other conditions. Um, And so, you know, starting earlier than you would otherwise is probably necessary. And then um, implant positioning for sure. You know, the, especially if you're starting young, you may be starting with like still a large portion of the epiphyses in a cartilaginous form. And so um, being sure your implants are not intraarticular, like we would use arthrograms in cases where there was any doubt. And I think there are some tricks to that proximal lateral 
tibia tension band plate where you know if you if you tighten the epiphyseal screw down first then that metaphyseal side sits off the bone pretty far and then i think you can get into trouble with like three-point bending so for that one i usually try to try to tighten up the metaphyseal one first so that you get that plate as close to the sort of as flush with the bone as you can interesting because i generally try and do the opposite i've found that um if I try to really, if I try and tighten down the plate with the metaphyseal side down, I just don't get quite as good of bite on that epiphyseal side. So I generally kind of get the epiphyseal side down first and then use the slightly stronger metaphyseal side. But that's interesting that, that you would advocate for the opposite of that. Yeah. And I think it's like, I would totally agree with you in all of the other locations, but that proximal lateral side can have such a steep scoop that at least for me if i like if i put the epiphyseal one down first i can't always i can't get that one to lever over so you know it's it's a balance and you kind of go back and forth like you're tightening up like a tire you know but i think i i do preferentially do the metaphyseal yeah. first yeah no that's that's great inside do you do any sort of pre-contouring of the plate or leave it as is i usually leave it as is but i know some of my partners will pre-contour and so I'm, i might start playing with that all right. What about you, Carter? Do you uh, do you have a side that you tend to put down first? I do pre-contour them. Probably uh, my OCD takes over, and I really try to make the the plates fit perfectly. And I think if that's the case, it doesn't really matter what side you put down first because it's sort of sitting flush on the bone. Um, the other thing that I probably get overly thoughtful about that may not matter as much uh, is sort of the the trajectory of the screws when you start. I had a really fun conversation with Dr. Steves actually. We were just recording a, a, an, one of the ads for this podcast, so it wasn't actually aired, but we were talking about sort of how to angle your screws at, for different cases, whether it's angular or, or longitudinal deformity correction. Um, so, Chris, I was curious, what's sort of the, the current philosophy or how do you think about the trajectory of your screws? Yeah, I mean, I so I would defer to Dr. Stevens, of course, on this, but there is there is some data out there. There's a study out there that shows that the the starting angle that you put your screws in, at least for hemiepiphysiodesis, doesn't affect like rate of correction. And I think that that's probably true because, you know, it's a, it's a tension band plate. And so I think even if you like perfectly center those screws, I think that the growth plate has to grow a little bit and that it's probably more like the, the proximal distal that matters. Like if you put your screws like like kind of like you would with like a trauma plate where you're trying to like compress, you know, like that probably leads to a quicker correction and has more of an effect than the angle. And so I don't get too picky about the angle as long as it's, you know, in a safe place and within the bone. Right. And what about the, uh, the timing of removal is, do you just wait till they're sort of, they have a straight mechanical axis or do you under overcorrect a little bit in this population? That's one of the limitations of the study is that we don't look at rebound like we just probably don't have enough patience and a lot of those kids like just just made it to skeletal maturity with their mechanical axes to neutral and so we don't know but i think i still tend to overcorrect a little bit in kids who have remaining growth so if they started in varus you know I'll bring them their mechanical axis just to the lateral side of midline and then take the plates out right makes sense perfect one thing that i did want to ask you is that the uh Echondroplasia population, I think, is a little bit daunting, even for people who do, you know, some portion of deformity in their work, but they don't take care of skeletal dysplasias all that often. I think there's some different populations that are a little more 
challenging than others. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that, uh, we talk about is different populations and how they differ. And, you know, can you do guided growth and deformity correction the same way in all these populations? And that, that obvious answer is no. And I know that Josh kind of touched on it a little bit, but what can you share particularly about taking care of the achondroplasia population? Just thinking about deformity correction in general and how you counsel those patients and how you counsel those families, because I think that's one of the more daunting things in, in deformity is taking care of the non-idiopathic kids. Yeah, definitely. So I think for kids with any skeletal dysplasia, you know, you have to be aware of the things that aren't just their leg alignment, you know? And so in a chondroplasia, the things that you worry about that, um, that require some extra thought are like, um, you know, the spine considerations, like the, the achondroplasia kids don't have that upper cervical spine instability that some of the other skeletal dysplasias do, but they do have, you know, frame and magnum stenosis and they can get lumbar spine stenosis. And so, um, being sure that they're not having any, um, preoperative spine or, um, base of skull compression type symptoms is important before you have them positioned in one spot, um, for a prolonged period of time. There is, there's sort of some growing evidence that neuromonitoring can be helpful in kids with skeletal dysplasia. And we're sort of working on ways to incorporate that into our practice. But I know that at DuPont, they do that routinely. And then I think it's, you know, once you've made the decision to, to use guided growth, you know, it's um, warning patients that like, this is going to take a long time. Like this, there may still be cases where you need to do an osteotomy because if somebody comes in late and they're symptomatic, then, you know, that might, it might be hard to sort of sell to the family. Like this is going to get better, but it's going to take, you know, two, three years plus. So I think having like multiple tools in your toolbox of ways to address the angular deformity is probably important. And then, um, you know, some other things that come up lengthening, like a lot of people advocate using, frames for angular deformity in kids with achondroplasia because you can lengthen at the same time. I just personally, I don't, I don't do or recommend like more elective type lengthening in kids with achondroplasia. And I think that that's controversial among surgeons and it's controversial among, you know, children and adults with achondroplasia. And so I, I don't get into lengthening in kids with achondroplasia, but if, if there are folks who are having like functional problems, then we're happy to like get them set up with some of the the bigger limb deformity centers. Sure. And are you doing that? I, I think that the neuromonitoring is an interesting conversation, right? Because it's like, do you do it? Do you not do it? Do you do it on every patient? Do you do it for cases that are only going to go over 60 minutes? You know, so what is your personal kind of uh, uh, regimen for that? Yeah. So I, I have not incorporated that like routinely into practice. I think that in kids who, especially with achondroplasia, who are not having pre-op neurologic symptoms less than 60 minutes, I, that seems to be pretty safe. Like in the patients that Dr. Stevens treated and that now we're treating, that seems to be safe. But I think it is important to consider that. And there are certainly some of the skeletal dysplasias that I'll probably push for neuromonitoring more. Perfect. Thank you. You mentioned uh, sort of the difference between cosmetic and functional uh, lengthenings. I'm wondering if if you have a sort of cutoff in your mind for that. You know, I've heard people say stuff like four feet, six inches, and above that, you know, you can pretty much function and do everything in the modern world. And below that, some stuff in the modern world just sort of isn't built for your body type. And it's 
uh, it's really a functional impairment. Do you have sort of a height cutoff or is it really just about sort of a patient's uh, complaints and issues in terms of when height becomes uh, functionally impairing? Yeah, I, I don't have a solid number for that. I think like, you know, I've heard like the four foot six numbers, some of the, some of the centers that are more aggressive say like you need to get to five foot to be functional. I am much more reliant on like the individual person because like we definitely have patients who are, who are lower in height than that and still function great and uh, would never consider a lengthening. And so I think it's really a patient to patient decision and discussion. Josh, is this an okay time for us to move into the the sort of stirring the pot kind of conversation? Because that's a good segue to some questions I had jotted yeah. down. So I'm just going to cut you off and say we're going to move into stirring the pot conversation. <laughs> that sounds great, Carter. Sorry for interrupting you. Thank you. Um, so first of all, Chris, how much of your practice is achondroplasia? Are you seeing a lot of these patients or was this just more of a, a review of you know the institution's medical records? So I, I work in two hospitals, the Shriners Children's Salt Lake and then primary children's like the level one trauma center. And so I attend and help with the skeletal dysplasia clinics at both those sites. So I think I see the majority of achondroplasia kids in our practice. So it's it's a it's a pretty good chunk. I I focus on their upper and lower extremity kind of deformity issues and then we have um, some other folks like uh, like Dr. Klatt, who was on the podcast before, who is sort of our spine go-to for the kids with achondroplasia. So um, I wanted to just go even further than what Julia was asking and just sort of talk about achondroplasia for, for the rest of us or for the dummies like me. Because, you know, I see one of these patients every few months and I have to stop and scratch my head and try to access some memories about what I'm supposed to do. So, you know, let's say you have a achondroplasia uh, patient coming in for the, their first visit. What sort of stuff do you specifically try to think to ask on history and check for on physical exam? If we just focus on like the orthopedic side of things, then, you know, the things that can present the most common orthopedic conditions that can come up in kids with achondroplasia, almost all of them will have this flexible thoracolumbar kyphosis when they're born. And, um, and it will really stay that way. I think, you know, they, they have, um, lower muscle tone hypotonia. And so they will, they will have that sort of flexed forward position until their core musculature develops. And so, um, for all kids with achondroplasia, you know, we sort of recommend avoiding unsupported C type sitting and using something where they're sort of tilted back and they're in a more supported position and then using strollers and car seats that have like a firmer back, not, not rock solid, but, but avoiding things like umbrella strollers where they're, they're in that C shape for a while. And then lower extremities, you know, we tell them that almost all kids develop angular deformities in their legs and sometimes those resolve and sometimes those get worse with time. Upper extremities, you know, kids will have difficulty with getting full elbow extension and sometimes with supination and pronation. And so we watch for that. As kids get older, you know, kind of teenage and above, although sometimes it can start younger, you can start to see that the stenosis in the lumbar spine. You know, kids with achondroplasia, they have a few things that set them up for that. They have shorter pedicle length, and so there's less space that way. And then in most people, as you all know, as you move from L1 to L5, the pedicles, the interpedicular distance increases. In kids with achondroplasia, it sort of does the opposite where it decreases, and so they they have a lot of reasons to be set up for stenosis. And so monitoring for anything that seems like that um, for claudication type symptoms is important. 
And so for that first visit, are there any x-rays you're getting on every patient with achondroplasia? Or is it all just based on the exam and what's going on with the kid? Yeah, I think it depends on it depends on age. But um, you know, if they're if they're one or two, then we'll usually um we'll usually get spine films just as a baseline. I don't get lower extremity films until kids are older and then I'm pretty comfortable monitoring them clinically unless you see something that's concerning like worsening varus outside of the normal age range or anything that looks like a varus thrust. I guess it goes without saying we're doing pretty thorough neuro exams on these kids given their risk of stenosis. Are there any referrals you're sort of automatically pulling the trigger on the first time you see a patient with achondroplasia? Yeah. So, you know, we're lucky to work with the geneticists just in our multidisciplinary clinic. And so they're like our go-to to helping decide where kids need to go. Um, but I think that in general, there are some places where everybody gets a baseline MRI for the base of their skull. I think that the achondroplasia world has been moving away from that, but everybody should get a sleep study to check for central sleep apnea, which can be one of the signs of um, basilar skull compression. And then a referral to audiology to check for hearing issues and that's, I think, where we usually start. Great. All right. And I had a few questions. You know, when we get to the lightning round, we're going to get way back into achondroplasia. Um, but I had a few other questions just for the sort of stirring the pot. We like to talk about some controversies in the field. And for just your general angular correction, what is your go-to implant? Is it the tension band plate like we saw in this study? I more recently have really been favoring the the percutaneous screws. So I think like when you compare tension band plates and the percutaneous transficial screws, there's a lot of advantages to the the perc screws. You know, there's a couple of head-to-head studies that show um, shorter operative time, quicker correction. I think they're less symptomatic. I think that's been shown when they're used for epiphysiodesis, not for hemiepiphysiodesis, but I do think it's true and probably lower implant cost although I don't think that's been shown in a study, but just like the actual cost of the implant, I think is probably lower with the perk screws. Um, the only, the only limiting factor to that is that I, I don't think anyone knows like what's the minimum age that you can use them in safely. You know, there is a theor- theoretical risk of creating yeah. a, a physial bar with that. I have not seen that reported. Um, but I think that's, that's definitely something to be aware of. And so you know, not knowing the minimum age or not having a perfect answer for that, I usually keep that for kids who are in like that adolescent zone, you okay. know, like girls 11 and up and boys kind of 12, 13 and up. And then younger than that, we'll still use tension band plates. But it's an area where we don't have the perfect answer. And what is the uh, the perfect size uh, pet screw to be putting in in those adolescent patients? What diameter are you using? I usually use 7.3. Um, All right. I like it. No mercy. Yeah. No mercy. Big honking screw. I, um, I like the bigger ones. I think they're easier to take out, you know, and I guess that's, that's another potential downside of the perk screws is that definitely like, you know, worst case, if you're in there with a tension band plate and you can't get the screws out, like you can, you can cut the plate, you know? Yeah. Um, but with a, with a transficial screw, if that gets stuck, that could get pretty, pretty hairy. Yeah. That could be a sad day. And uh, what about all this fuss about rotational guided growth? What do you think? Yeah. You know, that was presented at, at POSNA 
And I, I think it, it is interesting and exciting. I think, you know, for me, the, the kids who that would be used in are kids who still have a lot of growth left. Right. And for, I think a lot of kids who still have a lot of growth left, like they have a chance of growing out of their rotational deformity. Yeah. And so I personally don't tend to like even think about rotational osteotomies till it's like 10, 11, 12, if not older, you know? And yep. so I think, I think there could still be a use for rotational guided growth at that age, but you know, you just have less time, maybe less power to have a, have a correction. I for sure don't see myself using it in really young kids because I think there's such a wide range of what's normal for kids, rotational profiles. And, you know, just because they have a, a lot of excess antiversion doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to have knee pain or hip pain or trouble. Yeah. Great answer. All right, Josh, that's all I've got. Yeah. So my few questions to, to get the right answer, I don't want to hear any incorrect answers here. You touched on one of them earlier. What is the role for an orthopedic surgeon in quote unquote cosmetic limb lengthening? Should we be involved in that or not? No, I really don't think so. And I think for me, the risks are too high to justify the gains. You know, it's, it's a hard question because there are like surgical subspecialties who have a whole career in cosmesis. And, I, you know, I think that's okay. But I, I just think that with lengthening, there are so many potential complications that for me, before I sign someone up for that, like, I want to be sure that that's the right thing. We've had very thorough pre-op discussions and I can't see myself doing that for cosmesis. And then you talked about hemiepiphysis and the, the correct way to do that. What about a epiphysis? Um, what's the right way to stop someone's entire growth plate? So I think as kids in the adolescent population, you know, all of the prediction, everything that you do to a growth plate up until the point when that growth plate closes, right? It's based on modeling and averages and, and sort of like your best educated guess as to what's going to happen. And I think all of those models get more accurate the closer you are to being done growing. And so in kids, I, I like a permanent epiphysiodesis in kids who are older and in kids who I'm fairly certain are not going to overshoot. And then in anyone else, like kids who are younger or, or you have any concerns, then, then I, I'm okay with temporary epiphysiodesis, either with tension band plates or with cross screws. You know, there is some data out there that shows that there is a risk of angular deformity as kids grow, um, you know, and so you have to watch those kids closely. But I think there are a lot of benefits to that, especially if it's kids with things like hemihypertrophy, where you're going to, in some cases, you want to start really young, you know, and in those kids, I think the temporary slowing down of that growth plate can be a real, can be a big benefit. Yeah. You just want to kill it. They're, they're done. You're ready to oh, make yeah. it permanent. So are yeah, you doing, um, drilling or one side, both sides? Are you, uh, turning a core of bone? What are you doing? Yeah. So I will do what I think is pretty aggressive and use a, like I'll put a guide wire in, um, and then right along the, for distal femur, let's say, so guide wire in kind of hitting that central portion of the physis. And then I'll use an eight millimeter, like acorn type ACL reamer and ream over that and then get all the way across and then use, kind of bring it in a fan like motion to really hit that central portion of the physis and all through a lateral approach. And then I'll follow that up with curved curettes and really spend a good amount of time scraping. And then I'll, I'll punch some holes like through the, the 
metaphyseal and epiphyseal plates in either direction to sort of maybe stir up some bleeding and, and get that bone bridge to form. And then, you know, proximal tibia, I'll do the same thing. The fibula, yeah, all from lateral. Yeah. The fibula for me can be a little bit, can be a little bit tricky, you know? And, and so like I started by using a curette, um, kind of anagrade from the tip of the fibula and, and coring out the central portion. And I think that works, but I've still had some kids who keep growing like that fibula just sometimes does not want to stop. And so I've been thinking about trying to potentially use a screw, um, like an anagrade screw through a mini open approach to protect the nerve just because that fibula can be kind of pesky. Now, what about the, uh, you know, we, you mentioned using um, tension band plates to stop longitudinal growth in a younger kid. What about the theoretical risk of deforming the epiphysis by uh, stopping stopping the growth on both sides, but having some continued appositional growth? Is that a uh, a real concern, or is that just uh, overthinking? Yeah, no, I think that's a real. I think that you can see that change in the bone. You know, I think we we don't know if that has any effect on knee function or knee kinematics, at least as far as I've seen, and. I think in the kids who are that young, you still have some cartilage remodeling that can happen that hopefully makes up. Like I think as long as you end up with sort of a a smooth distal femur on a smooth proximal tibia, you're probably okay. But um, there's probably like imperfect information there. And so that may have an effect on kids that we don't know about. All right. So I got to hold your toes to the fire in, in 30 years when we have amazing information and we know everything. Are we going to know that it matters or are we going to know that it doesn't matter? I think we'll know that it doesn't matter. All right. That makes me feel better about what I do. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Chris, I, I mean, really appreciate that. You obviously um, spend time thinking about this stuff. And, I, you know, I would just add, as I mentioned before, the the Liz Frank injury from hiking in the mountains of Salt Lake is one of my memories from rotating there. My other there is spending a bit of time with Dr. Stevens and I know him from some personal relationships kind of outside of the OR and just think the world of him and would just be interested to hear a 30 second thought of you working with someone in a field in particular who played such an important role and kind of advanced a lot of the thinking on where we can guide growth and how we can guide growth and just would be interested to hear some of your insight into his brain and what he's been able to teach you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I met him as a, as a intern or second year resident and then got to know him through residency and was able to work with him as a partner as he transitioned into retirement. And I kind of took over taking care of some of his patients and he's a wonderful person. Like he's an incredible teacher. He is a thinker, you know, like he does not stop thinking like he would have, um, he would have cases and, you know, the, the guided growth cases can be kind of short, but between every case, he'd be up in his office thinking about things like brainstorming, writing on his whiteboard. He was not afraid to kind of push the limits of, of guided growth or really anything. And, and he, if he thought he was doing the right thing, then he did not mind some sort of backlash or other people's opinion. You know, if, if he thought that he was doing the right thing for kids, then he was willing to kind of push through that and prove that and try to prove that it worked. And then, you know, really cared about his patients. And then 
it's been really fun, like watching him transition into like what he probably calls retirement, which is where he's still thinking about projects. Like he's still doing animal studies and is, and is thinking about the rotational guided growth. And, um, I think he's just, he's always wanting to learn more and find other ways to help, to help growing kids. Yeah, certainly a uh, very thoughtful gentleman and has done a lot to, to advance the, the field in this area. So that's been nice. I'm sure to get some of his insight as you've kicked off your practice. Um, so let's, we're going to transition to the last segment here, the last five or 10 minutes to do the lightning round. And uh, Carter and Julia have a few articles that we'll hit on that, um, again, a kind of a theme here with, with achondroplasia and guided growth. But I'll, I'll go over to Julia first. You want to kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first one is something that I had to do a little bit of background reading on, but is something that also I think we don't think about enough probably as pediatric orthopedic surgeons, which is, you know, the medical advances that are really changing our practices um, and have the opportunity to potentially change life for our patients, you know, other than surgery. So uh, this is actually a um, randomized double-blind phase three placebo-controlled multi-center trial um, out of several international um, studies on vasoratide, which is a, and I'm, I'm going to refer to my notes again so I don't say this wrong. Okay, so it's a biologic analog of C-type natriuretic peptide. And the idea is, can uh, subcutaneous injection of this uh, medication change the growth patterns in kids with achondroplasia? And so um, they did a 52-week treatment, sub-Q injections, patients aged 5 to 15. Um, and they have a really some really nice tables in this study. This was published in Lancet, which, again, is not something I regularly read. But I would uh, recommend anybody who does take care of these kids to, to check this out because it is really interesting. And there's some really nice charts and stuff in there that show you, like, the different group groups that, that grew. Um, but so the primary endpoint was change from baseline in mean growth velocity. And they did find a significant difference that uh, the patients that were on the vasoratide for a year did grow 1.5 centimeters, one, excuse me, 1.57 centimeters uh, more than the patients that were uh, given the placebo, which, you know, 1.57 centimeters, I think for maybe a lot of people wouldn't feel like a lot, but, uh, you know, for those of us who manage deformities and, and uh, guided growth and leg length discrepancy, you know, that that it can actually be a really significant difference. And then that can be a really significant difference for these kids that are shorter stature. So that was kind of number one. So question for you, Chris, I guess is, um, you know, is this something that you've stayed on top of and, and, and heard about? And, and what do you think are some of the other medical things that are available for the skeletal dysplasias that are going to be game changers here in the next few years? Yeah. So we have been following this and, as I said before, I'm lucky enough to work with like an amazing um, genetics team. And so, you know, we talk about this frequently in our skeletal dysplasia clinics. And this is a great article. This is incredible because, you know, like you said, this can make the difference between somebody who does or does not need a lengthening to be functional. Um, it could potentially help to correct those angular deformities quicker. And we, you know, we do prescribe this for our patients. We have been sticking with the on-label use, which I think it's approved in the U.S. for kids five and up. But in Europe, they've been using it in kids who are 
younger and that being able to use it in younger kids might be coming, um, might be an option soon. And, you know, the growth velocity is great. I think one of the other benefits that people are hoping to see is that if you can start it younger, does it change some of the other, like more worrisome things that you see with achondroplasia? Like, does it help with the frame and magnum stenosis? If you can sort of fix the rates of growth of the different bones and, you know, does it help with pedicle length and pedicle distance? And does it change some of those like more like morphologic um, characteristics of the bone? And so I think there's some early information that it, that it may help with that, but nothing that's, we don't know yet, but we're certainly keeping on top of that. And then I think, you know, the, the world of these targeted treatments is super exciting. And, um, I've seen more of them in, in like the vascular related overgrowth syndrome worlds, you know, where there are some targeted medicines depending on the, the specific gene mutation, but it'll be really exciting to see what other things come up to treat these like at the source. Chris and Julia, you guys may not know the answer to this, but any idea if this is going to be just like a crazy expensive treatment, like the uh, SMA medications, you know, I'm sort of blanking. Maybe you can remind me on what it takes to uh, generate a C type natriuretic protein analog. <laughs> I, I think these are pretty expensive right now. Um, the insurance will, we have had luck with insurance some insurance is covering them when they're used on label, but I don't, I don't know the exact cost. I don't know, Julie, if you do. I don't, that's a great question. I think my assumption was similar to yours, Carter, which is that this is probably for the foreseeable future going to be an extremely expensive treatment. Cool. Um, well, we'll move on to the second uh, one, which is another one that um, there's not really kind of like one punchline, but I do think is absolutely worthwhile kind of popping through, which is out of JBJS, um, and it's by uh, the folks at Nationwide, um, Dr. Yopes and Dr. Before, and really just kind of what's new in limb lengthening and deformity correction. And they do a really good job of distilling a lot of information in a short period of time. I'm a huge fan of the what's new uh, series in JBJS, so I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, some adult and peds themes in here, but couple highlights. I think, you know, one thing that has continued to really change the landscape in deformity over the last couple of years has been how we assess bone age. And so they talk about some of the new different uh, assessment tools and, and what we think might be kind of the next best easiest thing um, that, that we can use in clinic. Another thing that they talk about is bone defects. So kind of talking about masculae as well as bone transport and the technology just can you, continues to evolve there. And then there's a couple sections about specific diagnoses like uh, CPT and achondroplasia. And then uh, talking about lengthening, I think, is is something that, again, we're, we're learning more and more about what the complications are and intramedullary lengthening and how do we get better at those techniques um, now that we have that technology. And so, so there's some really good tips and tricks in there on, like, for example, retrograde femoral nails. Uh, how to place your blocking screws, and then a really nice section on guided growth as far as different populations and kind of finer points on um, guided growth for some different techniques. For example, you know, the distal femoral for crouch gait in, in the CP population and other examples like that. There's a basic science section uh, that I would encourage you all to read because uh, I cannot do it justice here. Mm -hmm. 
And then um, the very last paragraph I think is really awesome. There's a practical tips and tricks section at the very end. And if you get nothing else out of this article, um, I think this is what to look at, which is the limb lengthening uh, and reconstruction checklist that has been developed to basically help you document appropriately and hopefully reduce the chances of errors during your post-op follow-up visits for patients undergoing limb lengthening and reconstruction. And I looked at this and I thought it was something I'm absolutely going to use and like have up in my clinic. Just, you know, checklists are so important. And even if you are really good at checklists and pre-op planning and, you know, oftentimes it's like, okay, the surgery's done and now we get to go to post-op, but there's no checklist for post-op. And so I found that super, super helpful. Uh, and then Dr. Yopes talks a little bit about uh, tips for removal of femoral lengthening nails, <laughs> which is something that, um, you know, nobody looks good taking out hardware. So I would look into that and then also talk about uh, the use of tourniquets during high tibial osteotomies. And there was a study that um, showed that routine use of tourniquets doesn't lead to a reduction in surgery time. Uh, intraoperative complications or post-op blood loss, and that uh, knee function recovers earlier and pain requirements uh, were lower when a tourniquet was not used. So that's something that I'm going to take away for for some upcoming cases as well. So big article, lots to talk about, but uh, really distilled down well. And I would I would encourage all of our listeners to check that out. And before Carter does his, I'm going to bring all three of the uh, segments together today and now ask Chris and Julia uh, what is the proper way to assess growth potential? So I, I'm still old school, and I think it's really helpful for the residents that I teach. I still bust out Gorlick and Pile. I still do a hand age and do Gorlick and Pile, although um, I think some of the newer apps are super helpful um, to use both, you know, the Olecranon, the knee. So usually I'll try to kind of correlate it with multiple in order to get my final measurements for planning. But in clinic, I'm still busting out the the gorilla can pile the, the old blue book and the residents think I'm crazy, but I think it's a really, really good teaching point. Yeah, I agree. I do. I do cheat a little bit, but I, I still use hand bone age, but I cheat and use, there's a modified shorthand version from um, an HSS article from JPO 2013 that I use, which kind of, it breaks it down into like half to one year chunks. And that's just easier and quicker for me to be able to use. Although I totally get using the whole Atlas is probably has a lot of benefit. And then I like to use the multiplier app, but I usually will double check that with another method. And so I think using two methods to be sure you're being accurate and using hand bone ages is ideal. I am, um, I just actually recently hung up in our office, the Dr. Lou's group uses the modified Fells score, which is like a systematic approach to looking at some knee morphology, um, looking at some knee morphology. And um, they have shown that that's more accurate than the hand bone age. And so I'm still learning about that, but I'm excited to try to incorporate that into our practice. Yeah. And they have a really, that's the app that I was referring to. They have a really nice app actually, that's pretty easy to use in clinic. And I, I think for me, I'm just, I'm sort of in that phase of still doing a couple different uh, methods in order to make sure that I feel pretty confident in it. Um, But the knee one's interesting, right? Because you don't have to shoot an extra x-ray. So I think that that has some advantages. Sorry, which app are you talking talking about? The multiplier app or is there one for the Fells score? Yeah. Modified Fells. Um, Skeletal age. Good. That is what it's called. It It has a rainbow on it and you can pick knee or hip 
and they uh, they update it pretty regularly. And, and Dr. Liu's been driving that that effort. One of the little app groups on my phone is Ortho Toys, so I'm always looking for new toys to add. So thank you very much for that. Perfect. All right, let's wrap things up with the lightning round. All right, Carter, bring us home. So next up, we're going to venture into the other school of thought of lengthening in achondroplasia. Chris, I hope it's not too offensive, but bear with us. We're going to talk about some uh, relatively aggressive lengthening. So the first study, and Josh, I love these articles you selected. It's going to take us back a few years, which is a little different than usual. First one's by Donaldson et al. with uh, senior author Christopher Bradish. Um, and this one's from London, and it's in the Journal of Orthopedics in 2015, and it's called Achondroplasia and Limb Lengthening. And uh, basically, they looked at 10 patients. They lengthened the lower extremities in all of these patients with circular X-fixes. They used a technique called cross-lengthening. In other words, they would lengthen one femur and the other tibia, and then they'd come back and lengthen the opposite bones so that you kept the legs relatively the same length, even though the knees would temporarily be at different lengths. And interestingly, they said, you know, worst case scenario, if a patient bails and doesn't want to do any more lengthening, unfortunately, their knees are at different lengths, but at least the legs are the the same length overall. Um, And on average, they got about 20 centimeters, about eight inches of length. They had 70% complication rate, but no long-term sequelae from the complications. So, just for funsies, what do you guys think was the most common complication? Something issues with the regenerate, you know, healing too quickly or not healing well. You know, that's what I would have thought. And maybe they just classified it a little bit differently, but that is not what they what they reported. Did they? I mean, I would assume pin site infections is up there, but I guess they might not have. I don't know how they quantified a complication. You know, yeah, was, so that, exactly. was that a problem? Yeah, so it's subjective. So, so yeah. we'll subjectively say that everyone's right, but you're both wrong. It was a 40% rate of femur fractures after removal of the oh. X-fixes. So four out of 10 oh. patients had femur fractures. Yeah, ouch. Brutal. Um, but overall, a big undertaking for these patients, obviously, they all had either two stages or four stages of lengthening, and they gained 20 centimeters so uh, on average, or overall, the, the authors called this successful for those patients who were w- willing to undergo this, uh, this extensive treatment. Next up is a similar sort of concept. This is a study uh, from Dror Paley called Extensive Limb Lengthening for Achondroplasia and Hypochondroplasia. It was a 2021 study in uh, the journal Children, and similar but different. He reported 75 patients and had pretty impressive follow-up. All of the patients were treated with either two-segment or four-segment lengthenings. So a two-segment lengthening means lengthening both femurs at the same time or both of the tibias at the same time. A four-segment lengthening means simultaneously lengthening both femurs and both tibias. And each patient had two or three of these lengthening sessions overall. And on average, they were able to lengthen 26 centimeters. And on average, they were able to lengthen a very impressive 30 centimeters for the patients that they started when they were when they were juvenile, as opposed to the ones they started later in adulthood or adolescence. So 30 centimeters as opposed to 20 centimeters in that previous study. And um, some other differences. And besides doing all four bones at the same time in some of these patients, was that they did them mostly with monolateral X-fixes. Uh, some of them were with uh, 
lengthening nails or even lengthen. And uh, there's even a description of some lengthening plates more recently. And I do want to talk about the complications a little bit. But uh, Chris, just in general, I know this is, is not your bag overall, but how do you feel about sort of four segment lengthening versus that sort of cross lengthening approach? Yeah, I mean, I think I like the idea of the four segment lengthening. I think that you know, if you're going to do that, I think Dr. Paley's group is the right group to do that. Like they have the volume and the system and that's what you would really need to do that in a way that's safe. Like you need to, you would need to be really thorough and, and on top of things in terms of like PT and bracing and home stretching, because I think you can quickly go from a position where you're like, you're okay. They have reasonable knee range of motion to all of a sudden they have a 30 degree knee flexion contracture and it's very difficult to get that back. And so I think it's great for patients to get all that done at one time. I think if you can do it in a way that's safe where you can keep a very close eye on people, um, then that's great. You know, I think alternating the segments, that's a great idea too. You know, you're doing one segment per limb, which I think probably helps with the joint contracture issues. I guess my concern with that is if, if patients do decide to bail, there's like, there's increasing evidence that knee height might be a big deal. You know, knee height differences might be a bigger deal than we previously thought. And so great point. I don't think we know the number, you know, like in fellowship, they would say that like people can tolerate five centimeters, two and a half inches before you, before you notice and before they have a functional problem. But I think that there's been more evidence that says that it's, it's probably a smaller amount than that that can cause a problem. And I, th- I suspect that the philosophy there was uh, with the circular frames, it was hard to fit it on all four segments. Um, For sure, yeah. So it was nice to do one femur and the opposite tibia. So now with uh, monolateral X-fixes or even better with intramedullary devices, it probably makes a lot more sense to, to do all four segments at the same time. A couple other things I want to say about the study. There's some great pictures if anyone wants to go look at it, but they have great pictures of like uh, a patient with their parent showing the height discrepancy and then another picture of the patient with the parent after the treatment showing the height discrepancy. And overall, the sort of punchline is that that 30 centimeter average lengthening, um, yeah, they were basically able to get all these patients within the normal range in the, the low side of the normal range for their demographic. So impressive. But then the uh, the complications are the last thing I wanted to touch on, basically, because I wanted to circle back. We talked about neuromonitoring before. Overall, they only had one complication with a long-term sequela, but it sounded like a pretty heartbreaking case um, of a patient who made it through the, the lengthening, tolerated it well, and then when they went under anesthesia to have the lengthening devices removed, they woke up with paraparesis of the lower extremities. And the patient did have a uh, kyphotic thoracolumbar curve. Uh, which they attributed it to, and they did a decompression infusion. And uh, some of the function, sounds like a good bit of the function came back, but not completely. So um, maybe a sort of poster child for for neuromonitoring. You know, I don't really think of the neuromonitoring as much, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think of it as much for the uh, achondroplasia patients because they don't have the cervical instability of the, a lot of the other skeletal dysplasias. But Maybe, maybe they should be lumped in there. Chris, do you have a, a thought on that? If you're doing neuromonitoring for skeletal dysplasia patients for non-spine surgery, should achondroplasia patients be included? I think it's reasonable to consider them. You know, up, up to this point, we have not um, used neuromonitoring in in the shorter cases, like with, um, with hemiapophysiodesis, you know, putting implants in or taking them out. 
But I think the danger of having a neurologic complication is, is there and is probably, you know, I, I will probably look to incorporate that more into our practice. I'm with you. I think the, uh, the approach that they've taken and described it in the really, really makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. All right, Josh, back to you. No, I mean, that was honestly great conversation. Uh, a lot of the notes that I had before the show, we, we hit on naturally. I appreciate the uh, thought that you have put in, Chris, to your practice and taking care of these um, complicated deformities and for coming on the show and sharing some of that expertise with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure and I'm super grateful to have the opportunity to hang out with you all. And Chris, thank you for showing some grit. I think this is uh, probably our latest late night episode ever. So uh, thank you for oh, I don't uh, mind. making the making the late call. Yeah, I think you all are up later than me. So thanks to you. All right. I appreciate you guys. Good times.